Welcome to the Redwolf Intercast. My name is Shane, and this is a very special show this, uh, today. Where I'm actually going to be interviewing the, one of the greatest comic book writers England has ever seen. <laughs> oh good see i'd forgotten sometimes you forget that red dwarfs are comedy uh, but shane never has yes uh mr kevin kev f sutherland that's me and uh you know that's not a description given to me often obviously kev f sutherland is a description given to me all the time but uh no those nice and praiseworthy things i mean people never say the opposite they never say he's the worst artist he should never be employed but um as for ranking me amongst uh, any of the barely adequates it, it doesn't happen yeah so uh so you you wrote for the red wolf magazine magazine back in the day yeah red wolf's magazine was it was a great uh, run that we did on it um we were involved uh, if not from the very first issue but very um very early on this is myself and my friend steve steve noble we had written comedy together we'd known each other since school and um we knew the editors from other magazines they'd been working on and so very early on mike butcher and, and also brian clark was involved i think certainly mike butcher the editor was involved with red dwarf and we would take it to a meeting so we had a meeting with grant and naylor and um other contributors who'd already started work on the magazine mm-hmm. and we got the whole briefing on what was allowed now you must have spoken to people who who've worked on red dwarf's magazine and they've probably told you all about what we were told by grant and naylor no, actually, no. Uh, we've had we've had people. Uh, we've had Seb Patrick, who used to run the official Red Dwarf m- website before he passed on. Uh, we've had uh, the f- fine folks over at Ganymede and Titan on, but we've never really talked. We've never really touched on the comics. Right. Well, at the beginning of Red Dwarf's magazine, we were taken to this meeting at um, Noel Gay Television. Uh, which was the parent company which involved Grant Naylor Productions on Oxford Street. Mm. And Grant and Naylor himself sat down, um, as well as myself and Steve, there was Pat Kelleher, a fellow writer. And, oh, I'm doing a dreadful injustice to not remember the names of everybody else who was around the table. Steve Lyons was one of the writers, writes Doctor Who books and Red Dwarf books. And, um, yeah, a few other writers. I'm not sure if um, any artists were there. Uh, we've, uh, I've, I've actually got the entire uh, catalogue of Red Wolf magazine on the on a website in front of me. So you've got uh, Chris Holworth, uh, Steve Lyons, Jane Killerick, Pat, right. Pat Critchner, James Hill, yourself, and Steve Noble. Right. Well, um, maybe all of those people were there. <laughs> I, I, honest, I honestly can't remember. <laughs> Fine. One of the big outstanding takeaways was something that we didn't know. Now, this meeting, and Judge uh, Red Dwarf's magazine took place uh, between series five and six. I think f- series five was coming up on the telly and the magazine got cancelled before series six. Uh, spoiler alert, that's way down the line. Mm. But uh, five, I think, was about to come out when we started writing. So the thing that none of us realised was that there were no aliens. Now, this must be a thing that you're, of course, ridiculously over familiar with. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But that was a revelation. Having watched four series of this program, which was uh, everybody's favourite science fiction program, there was no rival in in those days uh, because Doctor Who had been off off telly. Doctor Who pretty well went off when Red Dwarf came on, and um, 
I can't think what else there was. I think X-Files might have just started, but that was a, about your lot. And so, and I never watched Star Trek Next Generation. So there was only Red Dwarf and it was explosive. And we thought we knew it ex- extensively. By this stage, I had already designed a Red Dwarf board game. Oh, wow. But it was based on the Inquisitor, who I think is in Series 4. Uh, series 4, Series 5, yeah, something like that. Yeah, first appeared in Series 4. So uh, the Inquisitor was at the centre of this board game, and uh, it had them all... Uh, it was a rip-off of Monopoly, I suppose it was. It was certainly a Monopoly-shaped board. And uh, obviously it never went anywhere either. But um, we thought we knew it inside out. But the fact that nothing was... Uh, nobody was aliens, because it's never precisely stated, and there are no aliens. Or if they do a comedy routine about there are no aliens. I didn't get it. You know, I was seeing things like the the endomorph. Is that what they call? No, the, the polymorph. Polymorph. Yeah. I thought polymorph. That's an alien. It's not. It's a thing that came from Earth and then evolved. The cats came from Earth and then evolved. Inquisitor. Everybody came from Earth and then evolved. I know you know this. But anyway, so we were sent away with brief to write stuff, and we had various characters to write for. I wrote a couple of Ace Rimmer stories. And Pat Kelleher wrote Robots based on the imaginary soap opera. Robots, everyone needs good robots. And I drew robots from Pat Kelleher's script. And my ace rimmers were drawn by other people, including I think Darren Stevens drew one. And we did a couple of other smaller things that I can't quite remember what. But those were those were the big things. Steve uh, wrote... Um, well, what does Crichton become in Back to Life? The detective. Yeah. Can't remember his name. <laughs> uh, well, Steve wrote that, and it was drawn by Carl Flint. Mm. And uh, yes, so that was a, a good, uh, a good and enjoyable run we did on those. At the same time as which I was designing Red Dwarf T-shirts. Oh, fantastic! Fantastic. I designed the best-selling T-shirt of Christmas, 1993, which was uh, Lister with the uh, big gun saying, let's get out there and twat it. I hope you got the residuals for that. Uh, no. Oh, okay. I got paid a flat fee of £50 per day's drawings. So whatever drawings I did that day and sent off, I got 50 quid for them. And uh, let's get out there and twat it was one of them. Ace Rimmer Other Worlds Tour was another one of mine. Yeah. So it had Ace Rimmer on the front, and on the back it had a list of uh, alternative universes with different numbers. That was all my conception and design. Oh, there was a Starbug one that was quite popular. I mean, I think about 20 of mine got made into shirts. For a brief time, I had some of them as shirts, but I mostly, I think, wore them mm. uh, or uh, got rid of them otherwise. But let's get out there and twat it. Um, it was the NME published a chart of the best-selling T-shirts from the Virgin Megastores. It was mm-hmm. that supplied the chart. And uh, let's get out there and try it. It was number one. Yes, residuals for T-shirts would have been a great, great idea. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So you, um, so you were you were at the magazine uh, for quite a, a while. You mentioned why it ended. Do you want to go into that a little bit? Well, I was at the magazine magazine for about as long as the magazine lasted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Lasts, I think, two volumes, is it? I know it relaunched with volume two and went back to number one. And those were the stories that we were doing following season five. Mm. Once it, it, once it, 
So, okay, it went up to volume, volume two, number nine. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't monthly, was it? It was fortnightly. Mm. Now, and I'm doing this from memory because I'm not able to dig out my Red Wolf's magazines. When I had my studio until a couple of years ago, I would have been able to lay my hands on all these things because they surrounded me. But they're now all in a, st- a storage unit. Uh, I know the background behind me says otherwise. Sorry, <laughs> listeners, you can't see the background behind me. I'm pretending I live in the biggest library in the world. Uh, but I don't. I live near to a hundred square foot storage unit, which has got all my comics in. So uh, the Red Wolf stuff, I'm only uh, dredging up from from memory. Uh, yeah, it it came to a demise really annoyingly. I mean, inevitably, it came to a demise because people weren't buying it. Mm. And Fleet that published the comics uh, was very variable in how it publicized anything at the same time as it was uh, killing off Red Dwarf, letting Red Dwarf die on the vine. Um, it was about to launch the Judge Dredd magazines that were to be the spin off from the Judge Dredd movie. And they were also to fare abysmally, considering they were spin offs from a really big movie, the biggest movie made from a British comic ever. And they didn't last a year, I don't think. But uh, Red Dwarf, despite being on the telly, you couldn't get people to buy it. And uh, they'd also, Fleetway, had just um, come close to ha- getting their hands on Viz. Uh, Viz comic had had been courted by Fleetway uh, a couple of years earlier when they'd had Oink comic, mm. and uh, the guys from Viz met some of the guys from Fleetway subsequently, who said, "Yeah, it's a good job you didn't let us anywhere near it. We'd have buried you within a year." And that seems to be what Fleetway did. Uh, Fleetway not long afterwards buried themselves and got divided up and bought by different people. They were bought by Egmont if they hadn't already been bought by Egmont, and then Dan Dare was sold off to someone else. And uh, Roy of the Rovers was sold off to someone else. And Judge Dredd uh, was the lucky one because it got caught by someone who really wanted to keep it going as a comic, uh, which none of the others did. Of course. Yeah. The co- comic publishing for as long as I've been involved in it has always been on the way out. As soon as I started in publishing, the first thing anybody would ever tell you is that, oh, it's not as good as it used to be. Oh, we used to sell. Blah, 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 blah. So when I started in comics and people were telling you about the golden days, they were saying, and now we only sell 150,000 copies a week of 2000 AD. 150,000. By the time, that's, that was the late 70s. By the time in the middle of the 90s that we were doing Red Dwarf, um, I think you were trying to get it to sell 50,000 copies, but uh, it was getting below 25,000 copies when they were killing it off. Well, that's actually leads uh, into a question that I've been asked to ask you from my, yeah. from my good friend Nutty. Uh, she asked me to ask you, uh, are comics like this a lost art today or have they found a new life online? That's a very good question, and they're definitely not a lost art because people doing them, uh, there have never been more of. Uh, people producing their own work and producing work of the highest possible quality, there's been an absolute explosion. Uh, as some people know, I used to run the Comic Festival, which was in Bristol from 1999 to 2004. Um, other people have run them subsequently. Uh, but at that time, it was about the only comic festival in the country. And comics 
again, they were on the way out. They were dying. The previous comic festival had lost loads of money. It was called UCAC, the UK Comic Art Convention. They'd done their last one. They'd lost loads of money as a result. Um, and the, they were just appealing to this small number of people who by then were getting very old and into their 40s and into their 50s. Old blokes reading the comics they used to read as kids. So I came up with a comic festival to try and appeal to youngsters, people who didn't already read comics and trying to build up the audience. It only did so well, but it, it did so well for about five years. But then subsequently, we've had manga, boom, we've had cosplay really blowing up and we've had youngsters taking an interest in the graphic art forms in so many ways. They overlap with graffiti. They overlap with stuff that looks like manga, but isn't necessarily comic strips. They overlap with the superhero movies, of course. And all these things have come together to make comics bigger in some ways than they were. Now, they, they're not a thing that sells in big numbers like um, 50 years ago when the Beano would be selling a quarter of a million copies. 70 years ago, the Beano would be selling a million copies, of course. Uh, but comics would sell a quarter of a million really big ones and smaller ones, uh, 2008, would sell 150,000 copies a week because they were the staple kids' entertainment. So that's no longer the case. Weekly comics are almost non-existent. There's 2080, which sells to subscribers and diehard fans. There's the Beano, which keeps going at small numbers. And there's the Phoenix comic, which is a very good and worthwhile project that builds up a subscriber model. Um, and so keeps going by keeping those people on board. But they don't sell anything near those numbers. However, with Kickstarter, with web comics and with the comics that people sell themselves independently, not necessarily for vast profit, but of great quality, they can get themselves taken seriously. They can get themselves reviewed. There have been books that win awards now uh, without necessarily selling vast numbers. They'll sell small thousands, but they're excellent. They are uh, head and shoulders above anything that existed when I was a kid. So we used to have popular comics, which were sometimes not very well written, occasionally really well drawn, but read by everybody. Now you get comics where the standards are much higher and the audiences are much smaller. That wasn't a concise question. I got concise answer. You can edit with ease. <laughs> no, it's fine. I'm, I'm, I'm leaving this all in. Uh, but yes, yeah, uh, I don't know if you've ever been to Toronto. No. Um, I've hardly been to any international festivals. The only one I've been to is the Raptus Festival in Norway, which I was invited to uh, as a result of them having come to my comic festivals in um, Bristol. But uh, no legendary festival from San Diego to Angoulême. I've still never managed to go to. There's a there's a great place in Toronto called Graffiti Alley, uh -huh. which runs for about I think two city blocks, and it is what? literally. And the entire wall on both sides of the alley is just graffiti, and it's some of the most gorgeous street art you're ever likely to see. Excellent. Of course, I live in Bristol, and we're rather spoiled for street art here. Mm. But yes, uh, I, the international street art is amazing. And this is it. The sort of thing that uh, simply didn't exist when I was at school, when I was going through art college, and when I was beginning in the business. Uh, you see how the world has changed, and luckily that change has involved an awful lot more people making an awful lot more creative work. It is a great thing. Oh, oh, de oh definitely, definitely, definitely. And of course, because uh, uh, of course, after that, and I'm fast forwarding a loads of years because the next subject I want to get onto, you you started doing the socks. Yeah, the Scottish Falsetto Sock Puppet Theatre came about because I was doing comedy. 
I am um, somebody who went into comedy when um, his career in sensible jobs like comic strips uh, was ever so slightly faltering. Um, I actually started, I think, stand-up comedy about the same time as comics, but I've always done the two hand in hand. I've been doing stand-up comedy for a long time, and then I did a sketch show, which was called The Sitcom Trials, which even had, had a TV series, 2003, ITV, Google it. And uh, out of The Sitcom Trials, we did a themed evening, which was Shakespeare-themed. So Shakespeare's one of my things. And... We got people to write these sitcoms. You do these little competing sitcoms and then the audience voted for their favourite. I wrote a couple of little two-handers and I didn't want any of the actors to get the comedy wrong. So I turned up at the writers meeting with socks. They were just so they weren't even have, didn't have eyeballs or anything. They were a pair of my dad's old tennis socks or golfing socks. And I ducked down behind the table and put on a silly voice. And it turned out my silly voice and getting rid of my face was the best thing I could have ever done as far as anybody liking my comedy was concerned so uh, the scottish falsetto sock puppet theater were born and subsequently stole all of my comedy work i very soon stopped doing stand-up comedy and just let the scottish falsetto socks do it all they've done 11 successful runs at the edinburgh fringe most of those have been followed by runs on stage and they do loads of stuff on video and for the last year because there have been no live shows uh, we've been doing it all on Zoom. Mm, uh, if, you're, if you're listening, folks, uh, we're doing it this Friday. The Scottish Falsetto Sock Puppet Theatre are performing their Burns Night Spectacular. It'll be a Burns supper with lots of Scottish things and probably lots of burning things as well. And it also includes, uh, and I'm doing this because there's a guy who's making a documentary about it uh, and he wants me to, do, to contribute to it. The Socks will be performing John Cage's 4 minutes 33 seconds which, if you're not familiar with it, is supposed to be four minutes, 33 seconds of silence. So when it's done in a concert hall, um, that's an interesting atmosphere. If it's done on Zoom, I don't think anybody's ever done it on Zoom before. So we're doing four minutes, 33 on Zoom and seeing how silent uh, that ends up. I can't imagine it will. Uh, four minutes, 33 people talk to each other. I really don't know. But that's coming up. So it's Burns Night Spectacular. It's on Zoom uh, on this Friday, uh, January the 22nd. Uh, go to Twitter at Falsetto Socks or Scottish Falsetto Socks on Facebook and you'll find it. Tickets. Excellent. Brilliant. And you're doing one in February as well. Oh, yes. I was approached by the Quarry Theatre in Bedford and the Scottish Falsetto Socks have performed at more Bedford fringes, usually take place in July. We performed more times than anyone else because we did our first one in 2007 and we've performed every year since. And uh, James, who runs the Quarry Theatre and, and Bedford Fringe, he wants to put on shows, but of course we can't, they can't get live audiences in yet. So we brainstormed novel things that we could do. And we're going to do an interactive murder mystery. The Socks will be doing interactive murder mystery. The, they'll be performing all the parts. Then the audience try and spot the clues. The audience quiz the suspects like you do with a murder mystery. We're, we're not, you know, reinventing the wheel here. We're doing something that other people have done before. But the Scottish Falsetto Sock Puppet Theatre, that unique comedy act, have never done it before. So uh, the Quarry Theatre are uh, sponsoring it and promoting it. And that is coming up on February the 12th. So it's sort of your Valentine's night experience. Come and see people die. <laughs> on, on so many levels. <laughs> yeah, like, so, they, yeah, that's, they... that's, that's very... Obviously, it'll have comedy, it'll have songs, it'll have sketches. Um, I know some people might be coming along expecting, you know, high quality of Sherlock Holmesian drama. <laughs> and um, uh, Agatha Christie Witt. I'm sorry, we've come all the way from the uh, magnifying glass society of Great, uh, great Britain to 
watch this experience. And I'm afraid you seem to be funnying about and doing knob gags. Well, yes, <laughs> that will happen. Indeed. You've done, what, seven, eight Zooms by now, something like that? Yeah, well, this is the weird thing. When you do a normal comedy show, this is the general pattern for comedians. You write, If you write a new show, you, t- you usually write one new show a year. Uh, some people write fewer than that. And then you do things like the Leicester Comedy Festival in February, the Glasgow Comedy Festival in March. There's preview things in the summer. And then you go to the Edinburgh Festival in August. And by which time you've got this finished, polished, hour-long show that you've taken the whole year to develop. And then you take that on tour and you can go around to 50 different venues and make 50 different lots of people watch the same thing over and over again. Well, you can't do that on Zoom. Because once you've done it on Zoom, everybody who wants to see you has seen you, which means the next time you do a show, you've got to do something different, which is it's a great incentive to work. But it's a it's hard work. And so in August, we did the um, the uh, Edinburgh Fringe. We performed three of our old Edinburgh Fringe shows, Socks in Space one week, Boo Lingerie, the horror show the next week, and Socks do Shakespeare the week after that. Uh, it was very popular. Loads of people came. We got four star reviews from the Scotsman newspaper. And so we then did a new material night in September. That was successful. So I geared up to do uh, we have a, a sketch called Halloween. Uh, which is set around Halloween. So we did the Halloween show, the Halloween show, did that for Halloween. That was popular. So in November, we were about to return to the live stage and we had a show lined up in Birmingham. It got cancelled because of lockdown. And so we did that show online again. Then we wrote a Christmas show. And then we wrote for Hogman A, we did our first ever quiz night. So we've written four almost entirely new shows, devised a totally new quiz night. We're dividing a totally new murder mystery. Uh, the Burns night will be mostly new. Uh, so, yeah, never written so much new material in a year and um, then performed it and then had to give it away. <laughs> yeah. uh, as I said, we've done eight or nine and I've missed one. Oh, which one did you not see? Do you know? Uh, I can't remember off the top of my head. I think it was... Actually, I'm not sure. Actually, I'm not sure. I'd have to double check. But yeah, but I, I missed one of the ones four, in August. Four Edinburgh shows. So that was Space, Boo, Shakespeare it, it, and Roll Up, which was the one in November. It, it was the Shakespeare the one show, I missed. You missed Shakespeare. Yeah. Right. And yeah. then there's New Material Mates 5, Halloween, Quiz Night... Murder mystery, Burns night. That's nine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So and uh, but yeah, it's, it, they are incredibly good shows. I mean, tickets are nine pounds. It's nine pounds. So I like to keep keep it down to nine pounds because the thing is, people can share a screen. Yeah. Um, you can't do that when you come and see us live. You pay your nine pounds. You have to pay nine pounds each and march into the tiny little room together. <laughs> but the great thing is, uh, when you come and watch it, as a, uh, we, we, there are families uh, watch the whole thing. So um, I, th- I think we work out cheaper than Netflix in that way. Oh, do you know the person I have to thank for the Sox making their return is Dean Friedman. Do you remember Dean Friedman? I do remember Dean Friedman. Yeah, I don't know if anybody uh, out there in Red Dwarf listener land does remember Dean Friedman. Although, of course, if you're watching... Red Dwarf the first time round. You're certainly old enough to remember Dean Friedman. He had a hit, biggest hit in 1978, were Lydia and uh, Ariel and Lucky Stars. We can thank our lucky stars that we're not as smart as we like to think we are. Well, it was Dean 
who's a Sox fan. He's come to see the Sox live in Edinburgh and we've supported him uh, live on stage in Glasgow. And then um, when the lockdown started, he started doing these online shows and he got in touch, invited the Sox to guest on his online shows. We've now been guesting every month in his online shows and he guests in our online shows. He's guesting in our Burns Night show. Um, I, I, I won't spoil it by telling you what song he's doing, but he, he does a song in the middle and then he does another song at the end of the show. And uh, we integrate him into the, the story. And didn't you... I, which might have got to write that bit. <laughs> Do you want... You won a, uh, the Scottish first set of Suck Power of Thirst so actually won some awards. We won one award, which was the best joke at the Bath Comedy Festival in 2018. Um, I know it seems a bit pathetic to keep bringing out your best joke awards since 2018 uh, when it's now three years later. But frankly, we don't win awards every year. I always wonder how people do. Sure, I'm wondering how to do that with my books, because um, I see people with awards. Oh, interestingly, when I hold my books up to... Uh, <laughs> the Skype screen, they disappear. <laughs> How very interesting. Uh, everything becomes uh, non, non-visible. Uh, yes, sorry. Uh, people get awards, so many. I've, I've got uh, some friends who do um, Doctor Who videos and Doctor Who podcasts, and they're like, they've got six awards. It's like, do people just make up awards for their mates? <laughs> In which case, why don't I just make up some awards? Damn. Right, I just had an idea, but I said it out loud. Everybody, uh, retcon that. Forget you heard that I was about to invent the um, Ace Rimmer Award for uh, Shakespearean graphic novel adaptations. Not to self-edit that out of the podcast. Yeah, the, the Smoke Me a Kipper Award. And uh, you'll find that this book is the winner of the Smoke Me a Kipper Award 2021 and, um, and was also uh, nominated as the... <laughs> You were talking about your books, actually. We'll go on to that, actually. So you've done three Shakespeare um, comic books. That's right. Uh, the first one was Finlay Macbeth. I, I mentioned that I do the stage shows, and I do the comedy show, and I used to do a sketch show. Mm. And I have dabbled with putting things on the stage. And uh, I had the idea for how I would do Macbeth, which was... Uh, I've never seen him as this big heroic character. Whenever they've done him, like the Patrick Stewart version that the BBC did recently, he's very macho. He's a very successful warrior. And when I read Macbeth, that's not what I get. I get a very put-upon, henpecked husband who's quite, quite wimpy. Now, one of my favourite TV dramas is Abigail's Party by Mike Lee from 1977. And I had long pictured the lead characters in Macbeth as um, Lawrence and um oh the alison steadman character uh, candice marie no that's the other play well anyway those two characters out of abigail's party are you familiar with it shane uh i've seen it once right yeah but that was so, many that was many many years ago though so yeah he the mustachioed lead lawrence is very put upon he's a state agent he's working very hard but his wife is the social climber who's really pushing him on and pushing him beyond his means pushing him beyond his abilities he's got no social skills he's awkward he misjudges things well that's what Macbeth does. Whenever I read it, he's doing exactly these things. He's being promoted beyond what he really wants to do, what he's really capable of doing. And then when he does these things, he's absolutely screwed up by them. And so I've cast essentially Lawrence and why well, can't I remember a bit, her name uh, from Abigail's Party as uh, hey, uh, Findlay Macbeth. 
uh, which is what my lead character is, and his wife, Linda Macbeth. And then I've retold the story fairly straight. We reworded the dialogue, but kept a lot of Shakespearean dialogue. And then there's a little bit of a twist at the end. The uh, three witches in my version are the secretaries who work at this company because the whole thing is set in 1970s at a manufacturing company in Scotland called Alba Industries. So instead of being kings running countries and fighting for thrones, they're salesmen competing for uh, promotion and sales awards, which is, I think, a much more relatable way of presenting the same dramas and the same conflicts. Admittedly, it just still does involve stabbing people and getting away with it, stabbing people and going back to work the next day, which is, you know, whatever. I still think it's bizarre that they do that in, in Macbeth. It's like, uh, oh, I've just buried, uh, stabbed all these people. Aren't the police coming around? No, we haven't invented the police. Well, in my <laughs> version of the 1970s, it, it, it's slightly different. But yeah, um, that's how I wanted to do it on stage. And I realised, well, I can't. So I turned it into a graphic novel, which was the thing that I knew I could do. Mm. So Finley Macbeth is a 125 page graphic novel written and drawn by me, telling the story as I would tell it uh, stage wise or filmically. And I've also included the play itself at the back of the book. So if you don't like my version, you can compare it to the original and see that actually I'm right. <laughs> indeed, indeed, indeed. You've done three. I mean, uh, yeah. would that's I... because... That's because some idiot uh, decided to eat a bat. <laughs> and uh, I, I may not be entirely sure as to the start of the pandemic, but for the, it's passed into folklore now that somebody ate a bat. And that's why we all got uh, uh, coronavirus. And um, so the plan for Finley Macbeth was very straightforward. I was going to go to all of these comic festivals that I haven't been to for years and book festivals because... I do comic art masterclasses, which get me invited to book festivals, teaching kids how to do comics. I was going to go to these festivals and I had for the first time a book to take with me because up until now, I've only had my Beano comics, uh, Beano annuals or small, small self-published things. I was going to have a book to take, a book to sign. I had everything worked out perfectly. I'd be able to promote it to all the schools I would visit. I visit about 100 schools a year. And all these book festivals and then of course they didn't happen so in lockdown i began a second book the prince of denmark street the same shtick taking shakespeare and making it modern day this time taking hamlet setting it again in 1977 but this time in the music business so um hamlet is a punk we're in 1977 and denmark street is as many people will know tin pan alley it was the heart of the british music industry so i've got joe prince hamlet as a member of a punk band called the danes with horatio on guitar and uh, rosencrantz on guildenstern on drums and bass and they are right a rising band on the punk scene in denmark street but joe's dad king hamlet has died recently and then he finds out what's happened to his dad and it's suggested that his dad was done away with by uncle claude uh, claude who's now the boss of the record label and he's the new king of denmark street who's married hamlet's mum so we've got instead of conquering kings again in denmark and uh, that sort of thing we're now Rivals in the music business, we've got Polonius, who's now an old uh, prog rocker from the 60s, his daughter Ophelia, who's a hippie singer songwriter. And again, we've got the same dynamics. I keep some of the Shakespearean dialogue, but this time it's turned more into songs. It's a punk rock musical <laughs> and it's another 120 page graphic novel. 
and it has the original play at the back so you can turn, so you can discover that uh, again my way is the the best way exactly yeah exactly i've also done a soundtrack album i haven't actually recorded the songs but there is a soundtrack album in the graphic novel and i've put an even bigger twist to the story because uh i'm disappointed by the ending of many shakespeare plays so mine ends better Mine ends the way of that I'm sure Shakespeare was thinking. He just forgot to. <laughs> and you've also done a third one as well. I have. Midsummer Night's Dream Team. I was getting carried away with my rewriting. With the previous books, I just made some small changes to Shakespeare. In the case of Midsummer Night's Dream Team, I took Midsummer Night's Dream and made it into a heist movie. I've been reading a lot about uh, movie writing and also innumerable YouTube videos about how to write movies. And this was my attempt at writing a Hollywood screenplay. Now, again, just like with Finley Macbeth, I'm not going to be able to put a big play on stage. And like with Midsummer Night's Dream Team, I'm not going to be able to sell a heist movie script. I'm not going to be the next Quentin Tarantino. I'm not going to get the funding to make this Hollywood movie. So I write it as a Hollywood movie and then I make it into a graphic novel. So there's a robbery takes place at the marriage of Theo the Greek and Hippolyta. Uh, but who has robbed the jewels. There's not. There's no jewel robbery in Midsummer Night's Dream. I've added that. Uh, then in Woods Nightclub, which is next door to uh, Athens, the Greek restaurant, there's Oberon and Titania who run the club. And uh, there's various colourful characters, including uh, the table magician Puck. And they're all suspects in this crime, as well as the star-crossed lovers and the band, who perform their prog rock concept album, Pyramus and Thisbe, at the wedding. So we have a, a, a whodunit investigated by in Inspector Philostrate at the police station, told in a series of flashbacks with um, unreliable narratives, uh, narrators and conflicting takes on the story. And also lots of Shakespeare. Amazingly, lots of Shakespeare manages to make it through the story where Quince gets the gang together for one last heist, the Midsummer Night's Dream Team. It's the story I'm actually most pleased with the writing of uh, this one because uh, I think it's genius. Uh, it's 120 pages long and it's got the original play in the back. Did I mention they all have that? I don't believe I don't believe you did. No. <laughs> on Amazon. If anybody wants signed copies, if they go to my website or my mailing list, kevfcomicartist.com, you'll find a way of getting a signed copy from me for six ninety nine. And I have my copy downstairs. Yes, well done. Thank you. Well, Shane has been one of the people who made this possible. I've been doing these all with. Um, kickstarter campaigns and it's been brilliant the number of people who've come on board and got behind uh these books this is the world of, of comic and book publishing nowadays is finding your audience and then working with them as a community rather than just broadcasting you know sticking it out there in the shops and hoping someone finds it did i ever tell you how i found you how uh, your dup video Oh, right. Yes, uh, 2017, I think, yeah. wasn't it, when the UP uh, came into government? 2015? Yeah. Uh, they came into government and the Sox did um, a silly little comedy routine. Oh, well, isn't that good? It caught your eye. Yeah. Yeah, we need to do more one-off things on topical subjects yeah, that might catch the eye. Yeah. Do you know the one subject the Sock Puppets have, I think, never done a video about? Donald Trump. I've left it a bit late. Today is the day that Donald Trump finally left the White House. He's no longer the president. I've spent four years uh, with 
whenever I've been doing writing, thinking, I can't think of anything to write about him funnier than the truth. <laughs> the truth always uh, trumped anything. Um, and even, you know, people doing impersonations of him, they were never as funny as him. It's been a strange dichotomy for comedians, that whole four-year period. It has, it has. But as, of, as we recall this at three o'clock on Wednesday afternoon, we've, still, we've only got two hours left of him. Yes, well, he's flown away from the White House. He did yeah. that earlier today. And uh, Biden's inauguration is underway as we speak. Yes, in the, indeed, 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 yeah. Because um, uh, going back to the DEP video, uh, I used to be heavily involved in politics myself. Ah. And uh, election day 2015 was an incredibly long day. Uh, I started. Yeah, the results took a long time, didn't they? Yeah, I, I started at 5 a.m. Thursday morning. And by the time I actually got officially properly home, it was 9 p.m. Friday night. Were you counting? Were you uh, campaigning? I was campaigning, yes. And uh, ah. overnight, uh, I am allowed to watch the votes to make sure... I'm, an in I'm one of those um, uh, people who watch the count to make sure all the count is legal and above board. Oh, so you're in a freezing cold school sports stadium? Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. I've just been reading Matt Ford's book, um, Politically Homeless about uh, his time working with the Labour Party and uh, what he's learned about politics over the years. And it's fascinating. Yeah, it, oh, it definitely is, definitely is. I mean, uh, I can't remember if it was that year or the 2017 general election, but we had a uh, university student who do, doing some um, work experience with us. And he was with us for about three months. And he, right. he told me he'd, he'd learnt more in that three months than he did in the past two and a half years of being at university. Oh, yes. Yes, I can, I can easily imagine. Um, I mean, I know from, from student politics that you, 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 you're right on the fringes of it and you've got no idea. But yeah, the Matt Ford book gave a very good insight to the, the cut and thrust of actual town hall business and, and politics, which, I mean, one has long got the idea, if only from fiction, that uh, politics is not what one idealistically imagines it should be. I mean, even from the thick of it and Veep, which I take as documentaries, uh, one knows that uh, the reasons that things go as badly as they do is because uh, humans are involved. Oh, oh definitely, definitely, definitely. Uh, but we've been going up for just over half an hour now, so I'm going to um, call it time. Unless you want to say anything else, Kev? I think I have sufficiently plugged everything I needed to plug. Do please come see our comedy show, Scottish Falsetto Stock Puppet Theatre. Google that and you'll know when we're on. Uh, do please buy my books, KFF Comic Artist, and anything I've done is available online somewhere. And do keep listening to Shane and the podcast, because Red Dwarf can't be discussed enough. Indeed. I will leave you with this. This was on page 63 of the final Red Dwarf magazine. And I quote, A Kevin F. Sutherland production, brackets, hard, hardest working men in comics, close brackets. <laughs> Did I write that myself by any chance? <laughs> I don't think <yeah>, probably. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, then it must be true. True, yes. But uh, thanks for everyone for listening, and thank you, Kev, for coming on board. Thank you, Shane. See you at Friday's show. Indeed. Cheerio, everyone. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm.